Hello everyone and welcome to the special Monday edition of Two Crickets in a Thorn Tree. I'm Nicholas Lorimer, your host, and I'm here with my co-host Gabriel Krauser. Gabriel, how are you? How's it, Nicholas? So uh, I think we first need to do a little bit of housekeeping before we start, which is that we've had a a comment from one of our loyal listeners on the question of abolition. So we talked briefly in one of of the previous episodes about uh, which was the prime minister who abolished slavery in the United Kingdom. Yeah. And we couldn't remember at the time. So one of our listeners uh, said... Uh, Pitt the Younger supported Wilberforce in trying to get the bill abolishing slavery passed for many years. Lord Grenville succeeded Pitt, and he was the Prime Minister when the House passed the bill abolishing slavery. So thank you very much to our listener. And you have actually prompted some discussion between us on this issue. Right. I mean, so that that is factually correct. Um, it's just the case that it doesn't tell the whole story because first, uh, the sort of first mo- movement towards abolishing slavery comes from the courts, and that actually, that precedent is set centuries before and then it's reestablished, and uh, and then there's and then there's three stages to abolishing slavery within the UK. But we think that this is a seriously important thing to talk about and get a proper analysis of. So we're going to do that on the next episode. Yeah, we and we're thinking of doing a whole episode. We might even go into kind of the history of slavery as an institution in, in the world. Yeah, um, a lot of our debates on slavery are dominated by the fact that the Americans, for them, it's a very particular kind of cultural, psychological yeah. sore, and so they focus very much on their own history. But I think it's important to look at slavery and its abolition. Yeah, uh, get a global in, in a global perspective because that's actually when it becomes. Inc- a very happy story rather than a very sad story, right? Well, I mean, uh, and uh, and 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 it's to get past the mood, mood music in a sense. It's also a story that I think we can learn a lot from. Yes, I mean, it is one of the key uh, uh, events in emancipating, literally, millions of people around the world. Yeah, um, and liberty. We, you know, we yeah, are here at a liberal institution, libertas. The, the the original sense of the word is in contrast to a slave. You have a, a liber, a free person. Exactly. So to understand liberty, I think you you really have to understand slavery. So tune into the next episode for more of that. But for today, we're going to be talking about a number of different things. Um, we're going to start with the suicide of Jeffrey Epstein. Mm. Now, Jeffrey Epstein is a very wealthy man. He's a billionaire in the United States, or was rather, and he uh, was found guilty a few years ago, but then settled kind of out of court. Um, I believe uh, he was charged with soliciting sex from underage girls, mm-hmm. uh, sort of girls in their early teens, 14-year-old. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he appears to have gotten off very lightly from that. He was charged, I believe, by the state of Florida, and he appears to have gotten very special treatment. He was able to work from his prison cell, and he shoved, served a very short amount of time. Uh, new charges were brought against him for the same thing. Apparently, he was allegedly he was uh, recruiting teenage girls, um, kind of dragging them into sort of sex trafficking and, st- and that kind of thing. He had these flights, which were nicknamed the Lolita Express, where he mm. had very young girls and celebrities from uh, all over the United States and the world traveling with him, including Donald Trump and Bill Clinton, mm. uh, which is quite disturbing, as well as other senior American politicians and possibly even, um, I think, a member of the British royal family was also uh, accused of, of, of spending too much time with this character. So over the weekend, he's been in a very tight prison uh, cell. Um, He was charged rather than by the state. He was charged by the federal government of the United States. They put him in prison. Uh, He attempted suicide a few weeks ago. He was put on suicide watch. Then he was taken off suicide watch, and within 24 hours, he appears to have killed himself. Um, And this has raised a lot of questions. There's conspiracy theories flying around the internet that he was murdered. There's some saying that he bribed the guards to turn a blind eye. But then there's also accusations of negligence that the prison just basically let this uh, slip. 
Um, Gabriel, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so I think that um, it's important to understand how causal chains work. I think it's a nice moment to remember an old word, etiology, which is the theory of causes, the understanding of how some things cause other things. In my opinion, the prudent approach uh, in a situation like this is to look at the proximate cause first, the close cause, before you get to a root cause analysis. What does that mean? In practical terms, it means, in the case of a death, looking at what happened in the half hour, literally, before the death. That's the thing that immediately, that's the immediate cause. And once you have the right picture about that, then you can get into the root cause analysis. Uh, so the, the various root causes, these are what the conspiracy theories, these are what the theories are about. So one root cause analysis is this guy hated his life. He knew that he was doomed to a long time in prison and endless shame, and it's a very difficult uh, thing to deal with, and so he killed himself. Another root cause analysis is that the Clintons were afraid of him bringing up stories about them, and so they arranged for him to be killed. Another root cause analysis or someone, is that, Or someone other than the or Clintons. Or that someone other than the Clintons felt very awkward about this, and so maybe they... Maybe they paid him off uh, in the hopes that the money will go to, you know, in his will, what, wherever he wishes it to go, um, or that they uh, got guards to, uh, you know, arranged for the guards to kill him, actually, and make it look like a suicide. These different uh, options, these different candidate explainers for what really caused it in the deepest sense are going to turn out to be absurd or real candidates, depending on what actually happened in the last little bit of his life. Uh, you know, one really important thing to know, for example, is was it by his own hand or not? Now, so far, it seems like it was. And so if it is, all of the root causes uh, that are viable have to be root causes that line up in a causal chain with him being the person who actually um, does it by his own hand. So I think that the two, there are two salient facts in the proximate cause region that everyone should attend to. The one is that um, he had been taken off suicide watch, which means he wasn't being checked on every 15 minutes. The, and, and the protocol for taking someone off suicide watch does not seem to have been properly followed. Yeah. It seems that the, the reasons to think he, that he, he is was only likely there. to kill himself were still around. Yes, he was only there for a week and he was immediately taken off the suicide watch. The, the other salient fact, uh, as reported by Reuters, uh, and although this has really had not much attention, is that some sources inside the prison guard system say that he hadn't even been checked on every half an hour. So the standard procedure, if you're not on suicide watch, if you're just a regular inmate at this prison, MCC, whatever it stands for, is that you get checked on every half hour by a warden, and, he, and that, what, that procedure wasn't being followed either. Yes, so uh, apparently the guards were very heavily overworked um, and that many of them were working extra hours and that, and they didn't have capacity. So that's one of the reasons that they say that this uh, lapse in checking happened. Um, it is also somewhat disturbing to note that this is uh, apparently one of the first, or if not the first, suicide ever at that prison. So uh, I want to give a sort of cautionary tale from South African history about how to think about this and how not to think about this. Uh, what the kind of pitfalls are in, in dealing with a situation like this. So some of our listeners might be familiar with the name Ahmed Timol. Uh, he was a South African, an, an Indian South African. He was a communist. Um, he had contacts with uh, South African Communist Party in London, and uh, he was spreading communist propaganda here. 
and he was caught by the police. His boot was full of communist pro- propaganda and of uh, contacts, uh, contact lists uh, inside the Communist Party. He was driving with a guy called Salim Isop, his friend, his sort of protege that he was trying to bring into this. He was quite young himself at the time. And they were taken to John Foster Prison. And uh, a couple of days later, his body exited the top floor window of John Foster. Uh, and, uh, and he was dead shortly afterwards. <sighs> now, uh, many people, I think, who are at all familiar with the story think that he was thrown he was killed it was made to look like a suicide but yeah. in fact he was killed by the Nats. yeah this is it this this story was covered literally for months every day it was on sabc and on various newspapers a couple of years ago when the trial was re the inquisition into the cause of death was reinstated and it was a very important event because this was the first time after the trc that the that the Nats police force uh, was being put on trial now after the amnesty period is over yeah. for killing a political prisoner. And we all know that Steve Biko was killed. Yes. Um, one of the difficulties about this case is that the presumption of of malicious, deliberate killing of Ahmed Timal is so strong that it's quite hard to sort of speak about it without sounding like a looney tune. Yes. But James Myberg, who is the chief editor of Politics Web, and I worked on the case for months. James hired me to go into the archives. The Institute of Race Relations actually had the best archive material of this from newspaper cuttings in vits and then i went to the national to nasa the national archives of south africa in pretoria yep. to read the transcripts of the Salim isop trial and without getting into too much detail all of the evidence really does suggest um that timol jumped that is not to say that the state is not uh negligent yeah in fa- psychological pressure so you know there's this curious thing where salim isop was was uh imprisoned at the same time and uh isop was was injured and hospitalized uh, and he was taken to a hospital in Pretoria, which is far away, and that was a little bit suspicious. There was a tipple from a nurse, so the parents figured out which the hospital was. They went there, they peered in through a little keyhole, it was sort of slat above the door, and they saw him there, and they were very distressed, and finally they got access to him. And so Aesop, with, uh, with the assistance of, of, of Ishmael Ayob and, and George Bezos and uh, a very strong team of, of legal representatives, took the nationalist government to trial for abuse of a prisoner in their custody. Yes. And they basically, they won the case. Now, what they found was that Aesop was not beaten, as he claimed himself, to within an inch of his life. The physical injuries, as recorded by the nurses and the doctors, who were all very uh, sort of afraid of the gnats and so had a reason to lie, but at the same time uh, had been doing various things like giving tip-offs to the parents that suggested that they were very sympathetic to this case. Also, not all of them were white, by the way. Um, and they, some of them clearly took the Hippocratic Oath very seriously, and one of the doctors was related to other cases uh, on which his, his liberal credentials were well established. They said that when he was submitted to hospital, he was catatonic, he was incapable of eating, of, of he was struggling to breathe, he was, in a, he was unresponsive, but his eyes were dilating, they thought there might be brain damage, they did x-rays, they found no broken bones, in terms of physical injuries, there really was like a blow to a blue eye. He'd been struck in the face and, and once in the chest. Yeah. But he had been severely uh, 
mentally tortured. He also, his blood sugar levels, uh, there was every sign that he was suffering dehydration yeah. and that he was suffering a, uh, a lack of a lack of sustenance. And so, and he'd, he'd clearly been put in. So the torture was more subtle, basically. So, well, the idea of, the, of torture at the time uh, was that you want to break the person's mind because once you've broken the person's mind, then you can get access to what ever secrets they have, yeah. but you want to protect the body. This was before, this was substantially before Biko. Uh, these were high profile kind of people. The, this was this was not in the Platteland. This was in Johannesburg. And the rule book sort of had it that, you know, the, the various forms of torture that were used as the, the physical brutal forms of torture were electric, electric shocks, sort of wet towels, things that don't leave a mark. Because the whole idea yes. was we've got a criminal justice system that will protect inmates if it turns out they've been physically brutally. So we don't want it to get out. So we don't want it to get out. And so we're going to use the techniques, the best possible techniques in this very Machiavellian sense best to, to inflict physical damage without leaving a physical trace of harm. Now, so what's interesting is that Salim Isab won his case. They found that the police had acted brutally, although predominantly in a psychological way brutally, but they couldn't use that information in the Timal trial um, because uh, apartheid law said that, you know, if you've got a trial involving a terrorist or an alleged terrorist, yeah. then you can't carry the, the information that it's kind of, you can't disclose that information. You can't submit the evidence that comes from that trial into other trials. Yes, yes, There's like a big yeah. secret blanket that's thrown over yeah. it. So although everyone knew and you had the same lawyers and you, you, the judges surely knew they weren't allowed to consider to, it. To consider and that, the judge yeah. clearly didn't want to consider it. He clearly wanted to exonerate the state. And so that's what he was able to do. Now you get the, ne the next trial 40 years later, two years ago in South Africa, where you can use that information from the Silab Aesop trial to make the following case. Salim Yisop was mentally tortured. He was also struck once or twice by the police. In that kind of condition, he was so mentally distressed that he literally couldn't speak, he couldn't breathe, he couldn't eat. He was, he was yeah. catatonic. If he had been capable of killing himself, he probably would have. He probably would have. Ahmed Timal, you can presume, was in a, in a similar circumstance. Um, in fact, this is exactly the kind of argument that was made um, and therefore would have been treated similarly. If he had been treated similarly, he, if he'd gotten the chance to kill himself, he would have. Why did he get the chance to kill himself? Because he was taken into the top floor, into a non-prison uh, cell, into basically a little office room, then was left alone by the... He was always supposed to have two people watching over him or one person watching over him. They both left the room to go and listen in to some gossip from a from a boss agent who'd just come back from the field. And so they left him with a, with the a coffee guy who, who comes and delivers, you know, the, hands out documents and, and does the coffee. And so he, he had the opportunity to jump out of the window, and he did. And so police so you, negligence you could means that, that they're the, uh, culpable of what Americans would call manslaughter or what we would call uh, do, you know, culpable uh, homicide. homicide. Um, and so the police should pay a big fine through tort uh, to his family and admit guilt and, and sort of pledge to make it right. Of course, that would have been the right thing to do back then. Today the pledges to make it right are a little bit different. Although if you look at the number of people that have died uh, of violent deaths inside South African prisons in the last 25 years, it's literally an order of, it's at least an order of magnitude yeah. more than, than before. So it would be quite nice actually if the government made a pledge yes. uh, to not act like apartheid brutalists I don't, yeah, I don't, and, and stop people from killing themselves or killing each other inside prison. I don't think we'll see that in time soon. Would I be, don't think we're going to see that. Would it be fair to say that the murder weapon was suicide? 
Right. <laughs> it is something like that. But so, so I just want to, so, so this case is very important. You can read, you know, there's literally six pieces about it in politics web. It probably adds up to about 14,000 words. So I'm just giving a, a thin veneer of the case to be made. Um, the problem is that this, the, the, this conspiracy theory, this idea that the Nats were fixated on killing Ahmed Timo, although this made no sense from a prudential point of view because he had lots of information and he'd started disclosing it, but he hadn't disclosed all of it. And so you'd want to keep the asset alive to keep dis- extracting information from him rather than throw him out the window. Um, and the, the, the justice is not being served, I think. Joao Rodriguez, the coffee guy, is being tried for murder for, throw, for, for conspiring to murder Ahmed Timur. For, for, and Joao Rodriguez is the only sort of police person that's still around at the time. So instead of the state taking responsibility for this negligence, there's this perpetual scapegoating uh, and it's perpetuated by people who just are so sure of what the root cause problem is of everything during the apartheid era, namely white supremacist hateful behavior, yeah. that they know, they don't need to look at facts like did Ahmed Timol's gut have food inside of it? They don't need to look at, th- this is approximate kind of question. Yeah. Their story, they say he'd been beaten so severely for the last day that his body needed to be thrown out the window in order to cover it up. But you look at the gut, food inside of the gut, there's a problem there. It blows that story apart. Also, the chief pathologist on the case hired by the Timor family through Bezos and them was Jonathan Gluckman. Uh, Gluckman was a famous, he's the guy who exposed the, 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 the Bezos case. He's the guy, uh, not the Bezos case, the Steve Biko case. Yes. He was the pathologist who said, no, this is all lies. This guy was clearly uh, malnourished and clearly had brain damage uh, as a result of, 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 of blows to the head. Uh, so he's a really credible, good guy. And, and he was he he at the time had to write a letter to to the to the Guardian in the UK, the Manchester Guardian, I think it was called at the time, to say these rumors are going around that Timo's testicle was crushed, that his eye was pulled out of its socket, and so on. And I looked at the body, and that just wasn't there. To this day, Timo's family kind of still believes what they want to believe, and people who support that still believe what they want to believe, regardless of the evidence. And the problem is the state, if. <laughs> If the state is negligent, it suits them as well to, to peddle these kinds of theories. So this is a case to bring it back to the Epstein case. Yes. Donald Trump's first response was to kind of go after the guards and things. No, he was he well. to, to peddle some of this conspiracy theory to say like in whose interest was it? The, he he yes, retweeted some guy saying, you know, this 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 dude was about to expose a lot yeah, of bad yeah. people up bad and therefore it's in their interest and because it's a motive. Yeah. You you must go for it. This is not good. It's important for the state to take responsibility if it's allowed someone to commit suicide in their own custody because they haven't followed protocol. I'm not saying they're responsible for every suicide, but if they're not following protocol and then someone kills themselves, then they are negligent and they must look at that. And I think the only person who's, well, Ben Sass, who I think is a young Republican uh, representative. From Nebraska. From the senator from Nebraska. Yeah, and he's, he's, I think he's a serious guy. I think he's someone to keep your eye open Uh, uh, for. His his testimonies on a lot of... uh, congressional hearings and stuff have been his his um questions have been very good very clinical he's not emotive he's really trying to go back to first principles in some sense he seems a little bit boring but yes i think cool heads must prevail and he said every single person in the justice department from your main justice headquarters staff all the way down to the night shift jailer knew that this man was a suicide risk and that his dark secrets couldn't be allowed to die with him Given Epstein's previous attempted suicide, he should have been locked in a padded room under unbroken 24-7 constant surveillance 
obviously heads must roll. Now, he's not saying literally people must be killed, but he's saying that there must be an investigation yeah. into this, not on, the, not on the basis that it, you know, that it's in someone's interest for this guy to die, but on the basis that there was clear negligence. If that investigation then they turns out to show yeah. that they that this was deliberate negligence rather than uh, sort of incompetence or, or laziness or overstaffed or whatever, then, and if it's because of overstaffing, you know, let's just think about the fact that America has the highest incarceration rates of any country in the world, you know, and that, and that that's a serious problem problem and it's a thing to think seriously about and 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 this can be an issue around which people who want a little bit of criminal justice reform can organize themselves but instead it seems like you've got one side that say conspiracy theory just leave it alone and you've got another side that say oh well the conspiracy theories have been bipartisan originally when the news came out uh, pundits on both left and right of the u.s some said oh, obviously trump had the motive to kill people yeah to kill this guy yeah and the other said no obviously it was the clintons because of his association with bill clinton yeah. uh, i think one of the reasons this drives people so mad and why conspiracy theories grow so much i mean uh, there's a long uh, connection between kind of conspiracy theorists and uh, conspiracies about pedophile networks. Yeah. Um, because often when there are sort of networks of pedophiles, they are very, they act in a very conspiratorial way. They hide and they yeah. do often seem to be very powerful, rich people because mm. those are the only people who can sort of get away with it. Um, if you listen to the noted conspiracy theorist and complete madman, Alex Jones, yes. uh, he, he, he often goes on about how the, the, the globalists and the global elite are all sort of psychic vampire pedophiles. Yeah. I think that's his exact phrase, phrase that he uses. Terrible, terrible dude, great phrase. Um, and there are a couple of instances I read recently about something in, in Belgium, I think in the early 1900s, where uh, senior people in, in, in Belgium had been involved in some sort of conspiracy theory like this mm. and the police just didn't investigate it because they were mm. bribed. Mm. And eventually, I think like an angry mob forced someone to take the fall for it and a lot of people got away with it. And in this case, in the Epstein case, this is clearly he was pulling strings and using his power to, to, to avoid trouble. I mean, he got an incredibly, a deal that, that a, a guy with a windowless van who was sort of kidnapping young girls and pressuring them into sex uh, would never have gotten. He got a much lighter sentence previously. Mm. And mm. so that's, I think, the other reason why it's driven such mm. conspiracy is mm. they assume that he's connected into these these. Yeah, it's networks. a dark and nefarious and secretive project in the first place. Um, and then it seems to have... In fact, yeah. this, this guy is very rich from wealth management, but no one is entirely sure how he kind of got into the wealth management game. And part of the, the theory about it that's completely unconfirmed, by the way, mm. um, but still sort of ominous, is that he blackmailed people using videos of them sleeping with young girls into allowing them allowing him to manage their yeah. money and that and that idea was i i read about that last year i mean it's, it's not yeah he's he that that idea has been kicking around and it's, so it's not a response to the suicide so that would explain that's that's sort of where the conspiracy gets its its long list of people who might want to kill him yeah um i think there were several people who have possibly been in who might be indicted by this uh, investigation already hmm. were I think a former governor of New Mexico and a senator from Maine. Yeah, um, we'll have to see what goes on from there because there are uh, the I believe the investigation is still ongoing despite some reporting that they were going to close it. Um, yeah, well, so I think they I don't think they're going to be able to close it because there are there has been such outrage and people across. But the also because they're level headed, I think the outrage is my my point with the Timor thing is that that kind of outrage is exactly what allowed. Yes, the state to get away with to get off the hook. I, I think it's I think it's the cool heads that are saying, 
uh, it's not enough to have made up your mind about who the evil people are in the world and uh, and therefore they're guilty. Uh, you actually need to drill down to the facts. You need to look yeah. as closely as you can at the room. How did things play out in that 15 minutes before, in that half an hour yeah, before, that's, in that day of? In that's, that, that's very important. Motive is not enough. We need to seriously consider what exactly happened here, the specifics, yeah. and then address our criticisms of the system uh, yeah. uh, according to that. I, I, I want to say one more thing before we move on sure, to the next sure. topic about, about conspiracy theories in general. Now, uh, there's... I. <laughs> I think one day in, in, in a couple of hundred years when robots rule the world, hopefully not, humor, humor will not be dead because I think that the robots, the robots will clearly be able to read all of the emails and all of the WhatsApp messages <laughs> and everything that's ever been said. And I think that they will notice that there's like 30 million Americans and another 30 million people on their side around the world who, when they use the word conspiracy, it's a cuss word. Anyone who believes a conspiracy theory is a knave or a fool. Yes. Uh, because they think that there's these secret webs and that people can keep secrets. But haven't you noticed it's very hard for, to keep secrets? There's often a leak here or there. And it's very hard to coordinate. Haven't you noticed how incompetent we are? Conspiracy theorists are fools. But those exact same people for the last couple of years have been pushing a story of collusion. Collusion yeah. is a very real thing. This is, it's not foolish to think there's collusion. Collusion is very important and very dangerous and it's happening and it's the reason that the American election went the way that it did. There, there, in fact, there were a couple of people who said that Epstein's uh, uh, suicide was very Russian and that it was basically Trump using Putin-like yes. tactics to so, silence. So that's collusion. Collusion, serious. Conspiracy, ridiculous. And then there's another 30 million Americans and with their allies around the world who are exactly the opposite. If you say collusion, you must be a fool. You must be some Russia bashing, Hana, Hana, yeah, silly, yeah, yeah. silly kind of guy. But if you say conspiracy theory on Alec Jones's thing or whatever, no, then the, our ears must prick up and we must pay attention because this is what the dark nefarious web's running the world. Yes. And I think the robots are going to look at this and then they're going to look at when Mueller went to go report back to his people, to his government, to the Congress. And he was asked... What is the difference between conspiracy and collusion? Because collusion is not actually a legal term. And so the investigation was into conspiracy. Is there a difference? What's going on? And Muller sucked air and moored and ummed and awed for five minutes because his own report explained that collusion and conspiracy are exactly the same thing. <laughs> Two names for the, same for the same rose. But if he said that on camera, if he said that in a memeable way, it would end this game of gnomes. This silly little red pill, blue pill, we're dummies, you're clever, we're clever, you're dummies kind of silly thing. And I think the robots are going to look at it and they're going to say, these human beings called us binary stupid <laughs> machines. <laughs> yeah, that's a very good and point. And they will laugh at us. Yeah, that's a very good point. All right, so we're going to move on from uh, sort of pedophile conspiracies to uh, our next weighty topic, yeah. which is uh, a couple of days before that. We were originally going to uh, record the show on Friday, um, but then we had uh, some problems. It was, it, William, it was Women's Day and we had to celebrate. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, we weren't able to do that, but we wanted to talk about some of the mass shootings in the United States because... Yeah. Uh, the, the Americans have such sort of cultural power and, uh, you know, especially amongst our sort of middle class and elites all over the world, not just in South Africa, that these debates do come up in our own sort of social circles and in our own political space. Yeah. Um, so I just want to kind of be, be upfront. I'm very uh, pro-gun rights. I think that the right to own a firearm is a very important part of being a, a sort of responsible citizen. I think it's important for people to be able to defend themselves with firearms. 
Um, so you're I, not saying that if you don't own a firearm, you're an irresponsible citizen. No, no. You're just saying that- But it's like an extra. Ha- having, that al- having that allowance. Yes. Having that be an option that you have on the table. Is Although important. that being said, I do think that, that, that you should own a firearm. <laughs> but that's not, let's not get into that. That's not what we really necessarily want to talk about here no. today. Um, so I think that uh, there were these two horrible mass shootings in the United States. I want to just kind of lay them out. The one happened in, I think, El Paso, Texas. Yeah. Uh, where a guy who had previously uh, on the internet released a manifesto, um, he was uh, one of these kind of neo-fascist white nationalist type people. He said basically that America was being invaded by Mexicans mm. and he was going to go and kill Mexicans. Yeah. So he drove for several hours and he carried out a shooting. I can't remember the exact number of people who he killed, but it was like 15 or something. Yeah, 20. It was a lot. Yeah, it was a lot of people. Um, was shot indiscriminately at a Walmart. Yeah. Uh, then the other shooting, which happened within 24 hours of that, was on the other side of the country in Dayton, Dayton Ohio, Ohio yeah. where uh, it doesn't appear to have any sort of political thing. A guy who was who appears to have been a left-wing guy, but he didn't do anything. This wasn't for connected to his politics at all. He was a seems to be a slightly mentally disturbed guy. He had had a fascination with tragedy and, and things according to his ex-girlfriend. Um, he went and he shot a group of people, including his sister, um, sort of randomly in, in, in a, you know, also I believe- At a night owl. Yeah, it was at a pub. Yeah. It was a pub. I'm actually Facebook friends with someone who used to hang out there. Hmm. Uh, so that's, it's quite sort of dark. It's chilling, think. yeah. Yeah, it is chilling. Um, so what I wanted to talk about was kind of mass shootings as a phenomenon in general. Uh, and part of this is that I think that you need to recognize them as, as, as a distinct phenomenon and I would make the argument that they're not particularly connected to guns. So if you look at the, um, the, the prevalence of gun ownership in societies across the world, uh, regardless of gun laws, you'll often find that there's a bunch of countries that actually own quite a lot of firearms. I think mm-hmm. France has a surprising number of firearms ownership, despite their quite strict laws there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'll find that you know, the United States seems to have a very particular problem with the way that mass shootings happen. They have a very particular type of mass shooting. And a lot of these, although they predate Columbine, there are mass shootings that predate Columbine. Columbine uh, massacre, which happened in the 90s, 1997, I think, mm. is the quintessential sort of mass shooting. What happened was two troubled individuals who had kind of been outside of the school system slightly. They had been getting in trouble all the time with the law. Um, they wrote a manifesto, which was this kind of very nihilistic, hateful document that just sort of hated the whole world. It didn't have a political bent to it. Um, they dressed in trench coats. They prepared and trained for months, and they showed up with weapons, and they shot basically people in their school, mm. just almost indiscriminately. Mm. Now, that very particular model of shooting appears to have been carried out by each of these groups. So it originally was just nihilists, but what we've started to see in recent years is that um, uh, Islamic extremists have done a couple of them in a very similar style. Mm. Um, usually people who are not actually connected to terrorist networks. So I believe the there was a guy who shot up a gay club in uh, Florida, uh, in Orlando, Florida. He was not necessarily connected to ISIS, although he was inspired by them. Um, but he followed the same format. Mm. Getting a firearm, usually something that looks kind of scary, like an AR-15, mm. um, and, he, and, he, and he shot up the thing. But now we've also seen white nationalists Mm-hmm. do the same thing and this is quite new i think the first proper one was a guy called dylan roof uh who was from north carolina 
Uh, he went into a black church. He's the guy who who had a yeah, a, a Rhodesian he, flag he and an altar. Pose with South African, old South African and Rhodesian flags, and yeah. he was a sort of he was completely in love with this myth that you find a lot of online circles of yeah. oh, you know, glorious Rhodesia. Yeah, um, and he went and he shot a whole bunch of black people in a church yeah. explicitly for racial reasons. And yeah. it was very chilling because he sat through a whole service with these people in the church. Mm. I think there were about mm. eight or nine people. And at the end, he literally said to them something like, look, it's not personal, but I have to kill you because we need to start a race war. And then he shot them all. Mm. Um, there were a couple of people who survived by hiding under pews and things mm. like that. Anyway, um, it seems to me that mass shootings have become what what we might call a social technology. Uh, mm. So I was trying to describe social technology earlier, but you you helped me a bit. What, what how would you describe it? Yeah. So technology, a techne, it's a means to an end that's intelligent, that's guided by the human mind, and a social technology is 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 it's the case where the means is grounded in social coordination. So paradigm social technologies are the stock exchange. This is a social technology. Uh, property rights themselves, a form of government called monarchy, a form of government called uh, you know divine right monarchy. This is a social technology. Another one is a form of government called democracy, where you have some kind of a procedure where people elect a representative or decide by plebiscite. These are all ways. I mean, you have social technologies in your family. You, 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 you want to have dinner together. Yes. Okay, so that's the end. And then you have a conversation so about the, yeah. how you're going to get there. Yeah. And the, 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 that, that way that you have the conversation is, uh, is, is it, I'm sorry to say, you're not the first people to do it. Yes. <laughs> There's a kind of formula and your formula is likely to yes. be uh, very similar to others. And then you can sort of mute, see, so like, define a sort of yeah, ideal written, form and see how close you're, you're approximated. Rituals and things like that can all be kind of forms yeah. of social technology. Um, so what seems to be happening is that these shootings, um, because they touch on a very specific cultural fault in America, there's mm. a, cult, a divide between red and blue America, between mm. the sort of gun owners and the people who don't like guns, which tends to be a, a rural urban divide for mm -hmm. the most part, although not entirely. Um, <clears throat> that means that whenever a firearm is used, particularly one of the sort of quote unquote dangerous or looking firearms, you know, something like a, they usually call it assault rifles in the media, yeah. um, which is not really a technical definition. Uh, an assault rifle is not a actual type of collusion, gun. conspiracy, yeah. words. Words are part of how you signal uh, which side of the line yes, you fall on. Yes, yeah, exactly. Um, and as a result, I think the, it was one of the American newspapers, I think it was the Washington Post or something, published the names of every person who'd been killed in a mass shooting. I think there's been 160-something since 1966. Mm. It's about 1,100 people, mm. I think it was. They published every single one of their names. Now, when you put that into kind of perspective of a sort of pure numbers thing, if you're looking at this as almost as though it was just an ordinary crime, mm. uh, I think since you know, over the past couple of years, Chicago alone has lost a similar number of people to, mm. to handgun, handgun mm. murders, basically. Mm. So that shows, I think, that uh, even though it's a relatively small number of people, it has this great cultural psychological impact. It affects mm. people very deeply in a way that, mm. uh, that ordinary crime, so to speak, doesn't. Some of this is a little bit like aeroplanes and aeroplane crashes. Yes, exactly. And uh, 50 people die. And aeroplane and crashes are a lot more terrifying everywhere, than a car crash. And yet, mm. uh, on any given day, 
uh, 50 people are dying. Exactly. It, it gets into something and it, and it exposes this fault line in America. This sort of one half of America thinks that they're, you know, the, the anti-gun people are detached, uh, sort of uh, effeminate people who live on the coast and don't do any real work. And mm. then the others think that they're, uh, the gun owners are you know, sort of primitive rednecks who don't know, who can't, you know, who yeah. sleep with their sisters or something like that. <laughs> Can barely brush their teeth. Exactly, that sort of thing. So because of that, that cultural fault line, every time firearms are used in a crime like this, it explodes in a way that, mm. that doesn't, which means that the way it's a social technology is if you are a kind of depressed nihilist who has no, you know, who's kind of maybe violent and hateful and you just want to be remembered for something, mm. or if you're an Islamist and you want to make a big scene and like mm. strike fear into the heart of the, the mm. Western infidels, or if you're a white nationalist and you want to broadcast your badly written, badly spelled manifesto to mm. uh, the whole of America about mm. how the, the brown people are taking all of your jobs and destroying yeah. your, 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 your race. If you do the massacre with a gun as opposed to with a with a rifle as opposed to a handgun mm. or with a knife or something, mm. you're gonna get a lot more purchase than you otherwise would. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I th I think uh, so. It's a it's a striking idea. Um, to I'd like to just quickly abstract uh, and put things in in quite abstract terms because I do think that can sometimes be helpful. Um, so. This is a little bit about understanding motive. These are cases where we understand the proximate cause very well. Yes, it's it's very clear how the th how these deaths occurred. What happened five minutes before and fifteen minutes before and half an hour before, and so the motive is quite difficult to analyze sometimes um, because, particularly because when we look for motive, regularly, standardly, the things we look for are, are, are money, and these people to, to have. In none of these cases does there appear to be any sort of monetary interest, property interest in in doing this. They're not hijackings or burglaries. Well, also they usually die in the shootings as well. Right. And so the other kind of thing that you might think is some kind of power, but you yeah, can't so hold a power relationship once you've they, once you've died. Exactly. There so have this been is some uh, sort of armchair psychological attempts to say that these people are living in a kind of power fantasies and stuff. But I think that's yeah. very weak. Uh, I think analysis. it's a bit it's a bit thin. So, but one thing that um, we do all, I think, recognize is you know there's this Donnie Darko movie idea of sort of going to your own funeral and seeing what people have to say about you, and this preoccupies. Uh, a certain kind of uh, anxious adolescent mind uh, because in adolescence when you're in high school generally your life is not about power or property there's very little power and property relations going yeah, around it's about you're, esteem it's about esteem and so America's got a, a, a there are some extraordinary things about the esteem economy in America the economy of likes and dislikes or pride and shame one of them is that for example, we're having this conversation about an American thing. America's influence, its esteem influence, is 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 greater even, I would say, than its power asymmetry. I mean, it's got the biggest yeah, you, military you can go to or its property asymmetry. It's got the biggest GDP, it's got the biggest military, but it's really got the biggest imprint into the world of likes and dislikes because of Hollywood and the TV shows and the late night news and the Facebook and Silicon Valley, Instagram, it all comes from there and it all carries American I mean, celebrities. Who, who did these Liberian warlords in the 90s all kind of idealize and stuff? It was all people cowboys. like Rambo, Rambo yeah, and Rambo. Cowboys and that yeah. sort of thing. So that's just the esteem effect of America. It was yeah. American pop culture had created an esteem economy in a place that's very, not greatly touched by yeah. a lot of America. Yeah, if you look at, if you look if the last sort of since World War II, uh, at YouGov and uh, other world surveys of most known figures, 
um, around the world, other than your old religious ones, like Jesus, who mm. often seems to speak with an American accent, uh, in Africa in particular. Uh, a lot of them are Americans, Michael Jackson, you know, sort of yes, yes. American pop culture icons. So America's already got a very big esteem economy, which means the grip of life. Sorry, one, 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 one more on that. A yeah. lot of uh, South Sudanese people at one stage, are just around independence, were calling their children George Bush. Yeah, there we go. You know, it's crazy. So they've got a really big esteem economy. The, the grip of likes and dislikes, very, very potent. And especially for, for adolescents who are living in, in, in materially and power-wise pretty comfortable situations. You know, there's very little chance of them being invaded by a foreign force. There's very little chance of them going so hungry that they can't survive. Um, and so esteem gets real purchase. The other th a thing to notice about the esteem economy is that the precondition of esteem is attention. You cannot get liked or disliked or or, 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 or shunned or, or, or exalted if you haven't got someone else's attention first. So you notice this in small children a lot, the confusion of the, of the I think, basic human desire for esteem uh, because other people are smart. And if they like what you're doing, it's probably because, you know, they've got a good idea of what's good and bad. You don't always have to buy into it, but it's a, it's a good bit of evidence to check on. It's a good thing to desire to do well in other people's eyes that desire gets conflated with just the desire for attention itself. So the little child hasn't been getting attention at the dinner table and so it starts throwing its peas out of the thing and slamming the plate and screaming and do, throwing a fit, having yeah, a yeah. tantrum. Yes. And so they're getting attention. They're getting negative esteem, but often it becomes a self-perpetuating cycle because what they end up acting as if is they're acting as if what they really want is attention, whether yes. the esteem is yeah. good or bad. And America generally seems to conflate attention with esteem sort of more than any other country. One great American line uh, that's, you know, I know people who've studied marketing at American universities. I've got one friend who just graduated today is there's no such thing as bad publicity. Exactly. Uh, and the, the quintessential example of this is Kim Kardashian and Paris Hilton. Yeah. Who become famous on the back of sort of scandalous sex tapes. Yeah. And then, and the, but then they get real purchase. They're able to turn that into money. They're able to turn it into influence. The Kardashians can go and visit the White House. The White House itself is populated by a person who... Yeah, Kim Kardashian has arguably been one of the most influential people on criminal justice reform in a, the last five years of American politics, which yeah. is a very strange Think thing. Think about it. And it all, it's all grounded in this confusion of attention with esteem. So one of, the, one of the ordinary checks you have against people acting in a terrible way that they're going to get a lot of attention is that we all know it's no good to just get attention. What you really want is, is, is people to attend to something good or valuable that you've done. Um, and, and, they, and they America's economy's got that problem. So that's, those are two problems that have big esteem economy and esteem economy that conflates attention and, 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 and esteem itself. A third problem is, as you say, there's this fault line. America, uh, every election is up for contest. Uh, and there are elections every two years and national elections every four years. And w as you approach any political contest like that, the incentive, the esteem structures within the red camp and the blue camp are as follows. Anything, any difference that we can make might m be the difference between us being in power and yeah, not being in push power. Push us over the edge. So we need to demonize the other side as much as we can. We need to celebrate our own side as much as we can. And, and, and you will get more liked or disliked based on how much effort you put into kind of being partisan. And it turns the temperature up. And you can feel it when you watch a rugby game. Yeah, exactly. Right at the beginning of the rugby game, maybe you're quite impartial about the ref. But by, by 79 minutes into it, if the, if the ref makes a call against your team, then the it's, ref must yeah, be evil. 
Yeah, and, and, and you can actually see it in the way that, uh, I mean, problems, America has its problems for sure at the moment. Um, but they're on a pretty good tack. I mean, the, the economy is doing relatively well. They have Unemployment's lower down. crime than they've had for a very long time. Yeah. Uh, and yet you have the, the right speaking about Trump opens his presidency with a speech about American carnage, as mm. though like this is great crime wave or mm. crippling the US. Mm. Um, uh, the, the left is talking about how there's this sort of impoverished mass that is just being trampled by, by the... Uh, and this temperature turning up almost, it doesn't have any relation to society, to like what's actually going on. Yeah. It's just the sports game that's playing out. But what it does is it creates esteem incentives for people to... to, to, to there's one thing in particular that I want to draw attention to, this is my last p- point about it, is there's, there is a sort of... There's a conceptual room to be made for moral monsters. This is what the philosopher Gilbert Harmon, Princeton philosopher, calls them. We call them pure evil. You can call them the devil incarnate, whatever. These are people about whom nothing good can be said. Now, I encourage you and all of our listeners to think for five seconds if there's someone that they know who would refuse to ever say something good about Donald Trump. (laughs) I think we all know someone who will not ever let one word of positive esteem pass their lips in regard to that president. Likewise, there are people that I knew when I lived in the States who would not let one word of positive esteem pass their lips in regard to Barack Obama. Intelligent people, very well-educated people, hardworking people, loving and caring people. We all have room in our minds for moral monsters. Usually we populate them with Hitler, uh, Stalin, Pol Pot, and now... To be Mao, to be honest, uh, I think the real heroes, uh, the real sort of intellectual uh, heavyweights are people like Solzhenitsyn who could say of his own jailer, of his own torturer, even that person must have some goodness in his heart. Mm. And people like Hannah Arendt who said, look, uh, we, we must be, we must recognize that Nazis were also people and therefore they need to be, res- they need the respect of due process and like, and, and, and things like that. Uh, but for most of us, most of the time, I think it's quite fair to think of Stalin and Hitler and whatever as just pure evil. That's fine. Knock yourself out. Think of them as moral monsters. But just f- when that conceptual room gets populated by people who are alive, who haven't done a genocide, who haven't killed, you know, yes. when that room gets bigger and we didn't bigger. We start World War II. You, you you create this you create this environment in which people think, look, in the real world, I can actually go around and treat other human beings as if they are not human beings. Yes. As if there's no goodness in them at all. And it might be Trump for you, Barack you can Obama for human you. Beings out to, you can abstract yeah. them to vermin, to bacteria, yeah. to viruses, to to infections. And the proper way to treat a moral monster is the same way you should treat a virus. HIV, if you can press a button and just eradicate that thing from the face of the earth. You do it. You do it. Yeah. And if you can press a button and eradicate the world of moral monsters, if I could you know, shoot Hitler now, I would surely do it. Yes. And I'd surely be correct to do it. Yes. But if, if you if. make that population larger, yeah. then you start thinking, well, maybe that guy over there down the street. Yeah. Maybe, that, maybe those people going and, to and, that and church. And that's what all radicals seem to do, is that they do create they draw the net wider and wider i mean yeah. a sort of uh radical jihadists do it for everyone who's not them 
Yeah. Pretty much. Um, so you example. have these combined things. You've got a lot of traction of likes. You've got attention being confused for esteem. You've got this hot friction with these two sides rubbing against each other. And then you've got this ever-increasing population of inhumans. Yes. And then you've got guaranteed attention on top of it all if you use a gun. It does seem like the perfect formula for exactly what this, we've yeah. seen, which is a, a highly incentivized program. Now, the, the great paradox is that in talking about it, one does seem to be bursting it a bit, uh, buying into the game. But I think that there's a difference between talking about it uh, in the sort of mechanical sense mighty. we're doing. Yeah, um, there is one more ingredient to this concoction, which mm. is that there are actually spaces where these people do get positive esteem. Yeah. So a lot of the kind of communities that these sort of uh, white nationalistic types and these also these very nihilistically type type people because they're often very closely linked together hmm. in the manifesto of the el paso shooter hmm. he kind of ends it by saying yeah look i mean you know i didn't really want to make too much effort in my murder spree or my manifesto but i thought it'd be better to at least do a half-hearted one than a proper one hmm. meh, I yeah, think was, meh yeah. was his was was the phrase he used to describe his own the manifesto. shoulder shrug yeah it's 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 and and the New Zealand mosque shooter who is mm. an, uh, the next kind of example for these white nationalist types. He was mm. a big 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 one. Yeah. Um. Who the El Paso shooter was directly mimicking. Uh. uh also, once again, showing that America has spread beyond its boundaries because yeah. that happened in New Zealand. Yeah. Um. It, they they're showing that there's this. So so these people are generating a lot of attention from these things as we just talked about. But there's these kind of anonymous communities where this stuff is growing. And in there, you are positively esteemed. Mm. These are often filled with, um, you know, they're filled with some ordinary people, but they're also filled with people who are very kind of disconnected from society, mm. who are very uh, angry about their lives, pretty much. And they praise these people. And those communities tend to be anonymous. Mm. So the only way you can get really noticed and kind of esteemed by them is by doing something the that gets you extreme. in the big in the news as doing something completely extreme mm. um uh, like killing people yeah. or like destroying something yeah if i can there is a there's a there's a key esteem that's very good there's a there's a there's a key point the the, the first great analyst of of the esteem economy if i'm getting his name right is braithwaite yeah um an australian criminologist and then he inspired philip pettit to uh, princeton professor to kind of look into it um uh he he noticed that in prison you have these very strong esteem economies and that they work in the following way. Whatever's, when prisons are being poorly yes, run, exactly. whatever's good outside, whatever gets you positive esteem outside, according to normal people, yes, that's what gets you negative esteem inside. So outside, it's kind of nice to pass someone the salt if they say pass the salt. Or if someone, someone's tray falls over, you help them pick it up. If you do that inside, that's, that's bad. Yes. Boo you. Yeah. And whatever's bad outside... Uh, beating up people beating up people that's good inside yeah. and you can literally see it and it plays out in a lot of ways one way is the word sick yes the word sick is you know denotes negativity infection uh, death maybe or discomfort yeah. uh, at the least of it whereas or like even morally ill yes yeah, you know. whereas there's this slang sense of sick where sick is the great compliment that you can pay yes right yeah. so this I call, inverting the pyramid or, or badass as or badass yeah. inverting the esteem pyramid is is a very standard thing that happens when people are esteem deprived yes 
and uh, and then sort of, you know, I'm in a world that says all of the things that I do are bad or that kind of th- thinks I'm very meh. How do, I, how do I satiate my desire to be liked? Yes. Well, I just say, that's all actually their way of liking me. Yeah. yeah. And I'm going to act the opposite of what they think is good. Exactly. And, and a lot of these online communities have done exactly that. Exactly. They, they, that. they, they praise the bad and they... They uh, hate the good, so to speak. And it sounds like a very simple. It's that sounds like such a silly thing to say. I think if you if you don't remember that it's what children do in the playground. Yes. If you don't remember that it's what you, I'm sure at some stage in your life have done. It's certainly something yeah. that I've done. Is kind of think I'm cool because the teachers put me in the naughty quarter. Yeah. And a, a lot of these people are kind of they. They sort of uh, if you look into. Uh, the concept of anonymous online culture it, it originates in places like uh, what's called the Something Awful Forums or 4chan originally, mm. although now it seems to be concentrated on the website 8chan. 8chan, yeah. Um, there's this sort of long tradition of nihilistic things. So what they used to, the same people who who kind of got sucked into this culture of you know praising mass shooting and stuff, they started out by doing things like uh, pranking people, mm. you you know, sending people to the wrong video and that kind of thing. But then it eventually, some of them went further and they mm. started uh, making fun of people who had died on mm. their own, you know, memorial Facebook. First guy page. got ten thousand likes for making the yeah. prank video, but now if you try and copy that, you don't do so well. Yeah, so exactly. if you want to get ten thousand likes, you have to do, you have to and, and, make and, fun and, of and a dead person. Of, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Make make fun. I, I remember the, one of these horrible kind of pranks where they uh, years ago where some child had died and hmm. then they went and they all started making kind of insulting posts on the memorial page to him on Facebook. Hmm. And that's how it sort of started hmm. and it's grown and become more extreme over hmm. time. Not every, everyone involved in this, hmm. but a significant amount group, uh, a significant group enough to, 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 to cause these kind of horrible crimes. And I think this kind of thing does, I think uh, Niall Ferguson, the Stanford professor of history, formerly from Oxford and hmm. wherever, he, 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 he likes to draw people's attention uh, back to the 16th, 15th century, the printing press, yes. uh, how that changes, how this means of esteem and attention getting around changes the world. And what it does is it makes it much more violent for a while and then it kind of, we yeah. figure out how to do it and Things then calm down, it gets yeah. better. Um, I think that's a good point. It's not the first person to say it, but anyway, he's the most famous person to yes. harp on about <laughs> it. Um, I think that a similar point needs to be made about the internet um, because this is the precondition of a lot of it, but TV, you know, was also very important with Columbine. I think we are still figuring out how these technologies should be used, how to police each other in using these things, uh, how not to get carried away. And I, I, I'm pretty confident that this is the kind of problem that in a in a couple of generations, yes, at most, will will be much less of a problem than it is today. Yeah, I think so. I think that's probably right too, is that society and culture will adjust to kind of accommodate these people. But the, but it's in order to get road, from though. in order to get from here to there, the a cost will be paid. Yes. Severe the ultimate cost for some people. Yes. And I think for those of us who are lucky enough to still be around yeah. and think about these things, the the temptation to knee jerk uh and and perpetuate this us them uh, yeah. silly esteem way of going about things must be resisted. Yeah, no, it's something we st- we need to think deeply about because the the solutions to this kind of problem are not going to be uh, easy. You're not going to wave a wand and sort of no. uh, remove the means of violence or something because the moment you take away sort of the guns or something, it's not addressing the root cause. People will start using cars, which has happened <laughs> in places like Canada. 
um, or they'll use knives, or they'll use bombs, or they'll use something else. Yeah. Um, so it's a, it, the sickness is much deeper, unfortunately, yeah. I think, than many people. Or airplanes, you know, crashing airplanes into a building. Yeah, that's a pretty. It followed very much the same trajectory. Yes, uh, and a lot. Dar al Islam has mm. has been humiliated in the eyes of some fundamentalists. Do, do you know why they chose the date of September 11th? Because mm. mm. it was the day before the Battle of Vienna, where the Ottomans were turned back. So it's the sort of the the, the, the high watermark of, of Islamist expansionism. Yeah. Anyway, so we're going to move now very briefly on to something a little bit lighter than that, which is, uh, Gabriel, you were telling me about Kimber the Lion. Kimber the White Lion. Kimber the yeah. White Lion. <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> that shouldn't matter, but it does matter. So it's, just, it's, an old, it's, an, it's a pretty old story, but it was brought back to my attention by one of our colleagues, uh, Herbrandt. Um, uh, uh, the Lion King is a great movie in my opinion the, the one made in the 90s was super good yeah. it's the first movie I watched in, in cinemas beloved, by the way beloved childhood classic Columbine was 1999 according to the Wikipedia oh okay sorry about that no no worries so I think The Lion King was 94 like the year of tomorrow it was a fabulous time for us and uh, and, the, and the remake has been very famous now and it, someone figured out that in Japan there was a show in the 50s or the 60s called Kimber the White Lion that bears various uncanny resemblances to <laughs> the Lion King. There's there's a, there's a nasty uncle with a dark black mane. There's a sort of wise baboon that goes around with them and tells them clever things. And, there's the, a, and the bird? There's a little bird oh. that flies above them and gives them instructions and is a little bit sort of prim. Yes. And, you know, it's just... It's just so much the same story. I mean, you, the, the, there's Huffington Post has a, has a thing where you can see various sequences of footage, the, the opening, the middle sequences, literally the same sequences are being used. And this was brought to the attention of uh, Disney and of the, of the world. It was tried to say, hey, look, you've, it looks like you've done a redo. Because it's just important to note that the Lion King was a breakthrough for Disney in the sense that before that it had done The Little Mermaid, Aladdin. It had, it had been successful, Beauty and but the Beast. they say its golden age was kind of kicked off. Well, it. so those other things were fairy tales that were known fairy tales that they just that they just put up, they dramatized, whereas The Lion King was like an original story. And although it does draw on Hamlet, it's, it's, it is original and, and the public and critics sort of said what part of what's great about this is that it shows that Disney doesn't just... Uh, do the pictures and make the music for stories we already know. They can kind of make new stories, um, and that it's exactly that quality of originality that seems to be somewhat debunked by the fact that you can see the same scenes yes. made forty years earlier by 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 Japanese uh, designers, graphic designers, and then it's made even worse by the fact that the chief graphic designer of the Lion King in the nineties was himself a Japanese dude <laughs> who had watched the. Kimbo the white line back when he was a kid. <laughs> but he said it didn't influence him at all. Yeah. And they all insisted, no, there's no influence on it. And I think that it really is yeah, as stupid as it is, I think it's a race thing. I think because it's Kimber the white lion and they're brown lions <laughs> and there's beige lions and there's white lions. And it's not like the family, it's not like the royal family is the white lion family. It's like he just came out funny and his sister's like a beige lion and he's a white yeah, lion. Yeah. And it's just, it's just like in fact, when you look at the stills, I haven't watched the whole Japanese movie, but it seems to be making the case for like, you know, we can get along together, uh, beige and white. <laughs> it's not so bad. And that's already a bit of a problem with a certain wokey yes, 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 thing yeah. where it's like stay in your lane. And then also I think there is this sense of like, if Kimba the White Lion really was the inspiration for Simba, the Lion King, then Simba is 
is a white lion in beige face. <laughs> now that's problematic. He's actually a white lion and they've just painted him beige to kind of make him more acceptable to suit the storyline. Yes. But this is this is like the greatest taboo in American pop culture is 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 painting someone's face a different color to the color that it originally is. Yes. Unless you go for blue, that's still acceptable. Yes. Uh, and I for think that long, it's though? just it's just absurd. It's absurd that uh, so so we at the institute we want to kind of have we we're building a, a stockade of politically incorrect movies that one day we want to display. Yes, which I I promise I'll organize. Yeah, and and I think Kimber the White Line is going in there because I want to see. Because some of that classic Japanese um, anime, yeah, it's really has merit, eh? Yeah, artistic, aesthetic quality that's worth checking out. From that's no, yeah, it's 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 a very underrated um, sort of cultural stream, and it's actually surprisingly influential. I mean, the West is filled now with yeah. sort of anime fans and that kind of thing. Anyway, on that happy note. Uh, that, that yes. Disney has, has stolen their, one of their greatest products from Japan. Yeah, and there's also, of course, the thing about uh, In the Jungle, the uh, that, that song. Yes. The, the Solomon Linda song. Yes. And Netflix made a documentary just earlier this year in time to come out before the movie about the family. Yes. Not having enough money, but we will, we're will we not going to get into that. I know that story too well because I know Ryan Malan who yes, and he, took the case he discovered the, to the, the world. The horrible the horrible truth. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Um, so I would like to say thank you very much for listening. I hope you had a good time. Well, I mean, as good a time as one can have when talking about yeah, no, dog pe- pedophiles and murderers. Yeah. Um, uh, if you like what we do and you want to support the Institute of Race Relations, you can SMS your name to 32823. Uh, and one of our agents will call you back and tell you about how you can become a friend of the Institute. So thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you around on Two Crickets and a Thorn Tree. <laughs>